I do think that in the coming years, we will see more and more examples where we can really make a fundamental difference in patients' lives. Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe, and Biopharm International. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the editors who will share more about what you can expect in this episode. Today, we've got the delight to be covering the field of emerging therapies with Dr. Uwe Schoenbeck, Senior Vice President and Chief Science Officer for Emerging Science and Innovation at Pfizer. My name, Chris Spivey, Editorial Director for Farmtech, Farmtech Europe and Biofarm International. This episode is sponsored by Curia and Samsung Biologics. Curia is a global contract research, development and manufacturing organization offering products and services across the development spectrum to help their partners turn ideas into real-world impact from curiosity to cure. Samsung Biologics is a fully integrated CDMO offering end-to-end contract development, manufacturing, and laboratory testing services. And now we're almost ready to hear from Uwe himself. Uwe, I'll let you just talk a little about your role. And before you use your own words, I've imagined it a bit like going out into a rainstorm and trying to capture only the most beautiful raindrops. That seems like a nearly romantic kind of description of what can be a very grinding kind of job, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Partnering is obviously key, uh, key for Pfizer, key for the industry, uh, partnering with academics, with biotech, with other pharma companies, public-private partnerships, uh, venture capital firms, really all across. And uh, to be able to do that efficiently and competitively, Pfizer has implemented what's called the Emerging Science and Innovation Team. It's really the externally focused research unit, I would say, within R&D, therapeutic area agnostic. So we work across all the therapeutic areas of interest to Pfizer. We also are therapeutic modality agnostic. So we work across all the modalities, small molecule, large molecules, RNA gene therapy, the, the platforms that have evolved over the years. We are heavily engaged in the venture activities uh, of Pfizer. So we're really looking for strategically placed investment opportunities there, not just the more typical corporate venture type of series A, B, or C, but also increasingly we're doing more and more seed investments, new core formations, really trying to enable cutting edge emerging science areas that we see of, um, on one hand, strong strategic fit to Pfizer, on the other hand, also holding a lot of potential, but you know, really early, needing some more work before you could really fully implement them. And then we do have actually a number of uh, wet bench uh, capabilities, our own labs, uh, through which we run a portfolio of you know, around about 25 or so projects. And these uh, projects are uh, partnered typically with academic or very early stage biotech companies and really focus on cutting edge new projects, typically a true first in class, first in mechanism, if not only in class kind of programs that would allow us to bring real breakthroughs to patients. So these are by definition, a little bit higher risk uh, kind of approaches, higher risk kind of biology, 
but they hold a lot of promise and could provide a very strong fit to the Pfizer R&D organization if we can then build a pipeline and portfolio around those areas. So it's really kind of a multi-pronged approach. And coming back to your analogy about the rainfall and the raindrops, as you can imagine, there is a multifold of uh, potential partners out there. So you really need to start thinking early and clearly about where do you want to focus your search? Where do you want to place your bets? And obviously that's heavily driven on one hand through the priorities that we have with an R&D. As you probably know, we are focusing right now on the areas of oncology, rare disease, autoimmune diseases, internal medicine, which is kind of the cardiovascular metabolic space, as well as vaccines. And I'm not sure I mentioned rare diseases already. So kind of really five areas in which we're seeking to bring projects and breakthroughs for patients forward and accordingly also seek partnerships in. On the other hand, you need to keep an eye out also beyond that existing focus to where's the next generation, where's the next breakthrough coming from. And that's obviously another part of of our job to really help identify new emerging trends in the industry, new emerging trends in biology and medicine. So you're looking at different types of raindrops, so to speak, uh, some of which are more the existing, somewhat mature uh, areas of biology where you can further enhance your pipeline. But then also we're looking for the raindrops that are just forming, that are just coming out of the clouds, so to speak, and have a long way to go before they hit uh, the ground on Earth. But those are sometimes the most exciting, the most promising kind of opportunities as well. So it really needs to be that mix. And what's important to us is actually that when we partner, we really partner in the true sense of doing things jointly. So what we're looking for is not just, you know, to bring in the IP in-house or anything like that. It's really about uh, identifying someone, academic PI, a biotech company, that can bring something to the table that would be very complementary of what we can bring to the table. And jointly, we can do something that neither of us could do alone. And obviously the the goal for each of these activities is to really bring true breakthroughs uh, to patients in need. I hope that gave you a little bit of an idea about how we look at the rain and uh, at what levels are we looking into the rain. Yes, no, perfect. And I'd like to resolve a little deeper into some of those raindrops, but also I've been trying to put myself in your shoes because I find it an interesting role that you have. How do you as a group or as an individual set a threshold for risk? And you may not have a good answer for that, no, I think it's an excellent question, actually. And I think the way, I think each company might take a different approach here, but the way we have thought about it is that uh, obviously you want to have somewhat of a balance in your portfolio when it comes to risk. And risk can be defined as uh, risk in biology, risk in development, you know, risk in therapeutic modality, fairly mature, for example, relatively mature modality, but you go with a novel target. That's one level of risk. If you go for a novel target and a new therapeutic modality and a new development direction, then you're really multiplying your risk. And, you know, obviously the COVID-19 vaccine was one of these examples that fortunately has been, uh, you know, quite successful, but really was a high risk uh, approach that we originally took. And you can do this where you really see the need for patients, where you really see the potential for breakthrough, but you can't do it for every single program in your pipeline, obviously. You know, we also have projects that are not me too, so me better. So we're really trying to focus on innovative medicines, but they rely on more mature therapeutic modalities, for example, 
that rely a little bit on more advanced understanding of the biology and patient stratification. Now, on top of that, as I said earlier, you want to make sure you get a good feel for the cutting edge for anything that's emerging, promising on the horizon. And for that, we have, for example, this emerging science innovation team here at Pfizer that is actually looking for you know, select emerging science areas where we feel there really is an, an increasing potential for impact, but there's also an increasing opportunity to really pursue drug development programs effectively within them. So for example, some of the areas that we're focusing in on include repeat expansion disorders. It includes uh, DNA damage response and nuclear acid sensing uh, kind of approaches. It includes uh, senescence as one of the areas. And we have certain protein classes as well that we're looking at, for example, dubs, uh, deubiquitinases, um, that we feel hold a lot of promise for uh, innovative uh, therapies. So for those areas, we have a group like ours that really takes on in partnership with experts, key opinion leaders, you know, the true leaders in the field across the world to advance and explore these projects. And as we start to see more advances in these emerging science areas, as they start to become more mature, you can then really start to bring them in into the more traditional kind of therapeutic area or research units, as we call them, and really help drive them at a larger scale. But at the beginning, I think the way we handle risk is that we have certain groups that do take on higher risk kind of projects in more higher risk kind of areas that we call the emerging science areas and explore those particular through external partnerships where you can really harness the external innovation that exists in academia or biotech and combine this with our capabilities here at Pfizer to see which of these areas are most promising and which of these areas to really want to drive more aggressively. Okay, good stuff. When you're looking at a new area, is it hard to sort of not take your own preconceptions with you into that and, and, and sort of try to find something that you're looking for? For myself, I was hoping at some point someone will talk about interstitial fluid, for example. Are there areas that are more personal to you that you care about more, that you're more interested in as a scientist? And does that kind of influence some of the decisions you make? Yeah, it looks like you really found some history there. You're going quite some you know, some years back if you're talking about the, the work on CD40, CD4 ligand and atherosclerosis and inflammation in general in that setting, which was uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000 uh, in Boston at the Brigham. You know, I think you one, one of the key differences I experienced when I switched from academia to industry was really that in academia, you try to identify your field of interest, your field of expertise, kind of you can establish your own domain and, and, and you know, evolve as, and be recognized as an academic investigator and such. And often you stay with that at least general field for quite some time, often for decades. That obviously has the advantage that you're really deeply immersed in that specific single area of biology. But on the other hand, it obviously also has its challenges because you are just focusing on this one select angle of biology. And uh, what I found actually was that by being able to work not just within a given therapeutic area like cardiovascular, but be able to work across several therapeutic modalities and several therapeutic areas gives you actually an opportunity to really follow the best science. It has, gives you a little more 
flexibility uh, because you're not bound to found the best science in, let's say, just the CD4040 ligand or atherosclerosis field, which is a limited spectrum. But you can go for what's the best science that has the best potential to bring changes for patients that you can then pursue. And obviously, working within a company like Pfizer allows you to have quite some, some depth and quite some breadth at the same time what you can pursue there. So I have to say, personally, I found that transition not that challenging, but rather kind of exciting and and refreshing to some degree, because there's obviously great science ongoing, not just in the cardiovascular space, but it is in autoimmune diseases and rare diseases. And we have seen a lot of breakthroughs there. You know, vaccines obviously is a very infectious disease, very exciting area, not just because of COVID, but also because many other uh, diseases that still remain to be addressed, oncology, uh, very broad range. And what you found, uh, what I found at least, is that sometimes the mechanism you're interested in one specific area might actually apply to one, two, or many more of these areas. And CD44 ligand is one of these examples where we have seen implications anywhere from cardiovascular metabolic to autoimmune to oncology indications. So I can't deny that if I see some 4040 ligand data popping up, it clearly catches my interest, no question there. But it's not that I regret in any form or shape to have uh, made that step. And like I said, I would probably, if I would have the choice, uh, do it again. Not probably, I would definitely do it again because I kind of enjoy really the opportunity to learn more about a very broad range of indications and then be able to really pursue the most promising, the most exciting kind of science within them. Perfect answer. And mirrors what Mike Capture at FDA said. Uh, I called him, a, in correcting terms, an all-rounder, and uh, I think he was happy with that. Academics, in my experience, is such a different section of the human zoo compared with startup company CSOs or CTOs. Have you had challenges or interesting stories you could relate about working with academics? I'm not sure I would actually fully agree with that. I think if you would go back some... I don't know, 10, maybe even 20 years right now, particularly in the US, you probably would have seen somewhat different kind of uh, mindset. But I have to say, particularly in the US over the last decade, we have seen many academics develop really a strong mindset about how they can translate what often is basic research into applied medicine, into therapeutics even, and I think you have seen a significant increase in spinouts from universities where academics really take the ideas either by themselves with the help of the university, VCs, or you know, us trying to bring them forward. So for example, our what we call the Centers for Therapeutic Innovation is actually a model that's a partnering model that's dedicated towards working with academic PIs and jointly develop what's often early stage concept or idea into a robust drug development program by combining, uh, again, what they can bring to the table, often it's the biology expertise, and what we can bring to the table, the drug development and biology expertise, disease area expertise, and really make something happen that, that neither of us could do alone. They wouldn't be able to advance the project, at least not with the same speed and maybe not even quality. And obviously, we uh, benefit from, from really getting strong insights into uh, the biology of, of the target and uh, the mechanism. And so through that, we actually have seen over 100 projects over the last few years being picked up you know, from academic PIs, working with them, uh, with joint IP included, 
in on these programs and bringing them forward. We have seen a lot of mindset that is really well aligned with, I think, thinking in industry. It might be most pronounced in the US. I think you see a little bit less of that in Europe, but I think it's also increasing there. You know, if you think, for example, about the Asia Pacific region, uh, China has a lot of returnees that have worked within biotech or pharma and are very open to this kind of thinking there as well. And I think you really see a trend around the globe that the work many, not all, but many academics do and the way they think about their work is quite a bit aligned with what pharma and what Pfizer, for example, is looking for in a project and how to advance it. So did we have challenges? Yes, no question. It's not typically with a single academic PI, but sometimes with an institution. But we have had similar challenge, I would say, in the academic space versus the, the biotech space. So I think it's always about finding the right partner, finding a truly shared mindset between the partner and ourselves. And that can happen in academics. It can help them with, with biotech. And sometimes you run into folks that do think very differently still and have very different expectations, for example, how to advance a project or what the valuation of that project should be. And in some cases, it seems better maybe not to pursue the partnership from, from both sides. But those are pretty rare occasions, I would say. That is such a great answer. I'm going to have to update my information. And you do make me feel a little old, but I'm delighted <laughs> to, hear, to, hear, no, seriously, to hear that perspective. So going back just briefly to Verve, CRISPR 2.0, and then also a little bit into sort of hemophilia and gene therapy, going sort of more into curative areas. You know, is it kind of ultimately the goal of of your group to kind of put pharmaceutical companies out of business in the sense, don't take this the wrong way, but, you know, the more diseases you kind of knock down, the less busy you'll be? The answer is clearly no. Uh, and I can tell you why, why I think it's a clear no. You know, when I, when I started in industry, which is now nearly uh, two decades ago, you know, I was thinking that maybe there might be disease areas that we fully understand and therefore are able to fully address and not just treat, but cure. You know, when the Human Genome Project, for example, was completed, I think there was a lot of hope and expectation that would solve a lot of the diseases. And what we have learned is that nature and, and biology is not as straightforward. It's not linear. You really have to carefully explore and observe. And I think what we've seen so far is some really great promises for, for, for breakthroughs for maybe curative kind of approaches in the oncology space. Immuno-oncology has held some promise, even though we see some challenges now as well as we you know, mature more in that space. Gene therapy is one of the areas where I think there is really potential for curative kind of approaches. But we also need to recognize that gene therapy won't cure all diseases on earth. We will have to recognize that immune oncology is not curing all cancers on earth. And I think what we're seeing is with a deeper understanding of the biology that we also need to really tailor therapies to the specific needs of patients, to the specific diseases that we're trying to treat. And unfortunately, as far as I can predict, there will be a need to further advance medicines over the next decades to come. And, you know, COVID-19 is one example. 
has shown us that certain things can't be predicted at all and that you have to stay vigilant and that they have to stay on top of the game. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to get a vaccine in place in this extremely short period of time that's safe and very efficient and efficacious. So I think, unfortunately, nature is more complex than our understanding, way more complex than our understanding is today. I think uh, that will require continued decades of work to really get even close to more curative kind of approaches. But I do think that in the coming years, we will see more and more examples where we can really make a fundamental difference in patients' lives, not just by treating existing diseases, but uh, potentially even you know, trying to get more and more curative kind of approaches. Yes, it's a mature and correct response. I was trying to be a little provoking in the sense of getting a headline or two. So <laughs> I am very impressed that Pfizer put a lot of money at risk to develop the COVID-19 vaccine by doing things in parallel. I think that was a very brave move. Could you describe a little about the mood within Pfizer during that process and, and what lessons you, you took from working in such an expedited manner? Yeah, I think Albert, Albert Borla, our CEO, has written a quite nice story about you know, the evolution of the situation there. So I would recommend folks who really want to get an insight also from his perspective to look into, into the book there. But you know, I think the question that did come up early on is, if not Pfizer, who else could it be? Which was kind of an interesting phenomenon because you know, we did have a partnership with BioNTech in place from a couple of years earlier, uh, I think 2018, we, we partnered on a flu vaccine. You know, that project was an additional milestone or additional add-on to the RNA efforts that we had started even a couple of years prior to that internally. But obviously the platform was, was very early. It had not been tested clinically, but it did hold a tremendous potential for viral strains that have a high mutation rate, like the flu, but as we expected for other coronaviruses like COVID-19 as well. And so early on, as it became clear that this is not just a small, very controlled kind of outbreak, but it really has the potential to become a major health challenge for the world, we very quickly, together with BioNTech, agreed to really shift all efforts towards the strain. And I think at the beginning, when we, the organization was challenged with the, with the task, what can we develop a vaccine, number one? And number two, can we do it in a record-breaking time? There was that combination that I think really posed the key challenge for folks to really step out of their comfort zone and really think differently. Because if you would follow the classical you know, development path on our end, but also on the regulatory end and uh, manufacturing end and so on and so forth, you would never be able to do something in less than several years. And obviously the need was very tremendous and, and had really required us to take A, a big risk, but B, also to really ignore what we had kind of done in the past and do it very differently, yet still in a safe manner. And I think the safety was very predominantly on everyone's mind. We wanted to make sure that whatever we bring forward is not just efficacious, but it is also a very safe product, particularly since we had to do it in a very short period of time. So bottom line, I would say is at the beginning, 
there was a recognition, yes, we might be able to do it, but with the timeline that we were targeting, it, it was a tremendous challenge. And, and I think a lot of uh, sleepless nights uh, for many colleagues here to really trying to figure out how do we do things so differently that we can get there in a year from now, which was kind of Albert's challenge to us. And as you know, uh, at the end, the team was able to really step up to the plate, not just Pfizer or BioNTech, but also many other parts of the healthcare ecosystem really stepped up. And I think we have been able to do something that not many of us would have thought possible in uh, you know, March 2020. So I think based on that, a tremendous sense of fulfillment, tremendous sense of pride, tremendous sense of uh, really having been able to bring benefits to patients across the globe. I think that's why pretty much most of us are in this business. And I think that's what most of us really took away uh, from that experience. Totally agree. I've written about this in January. I'm proud of Pfizer and I'm proud of the industry generally for, for that achievement, uh, which is not a minor accomplishment because you brought up senescence. Can you elaborate a little? Is it a telomere sort of based area that you're working on or can you describe it in some detail? Um, so senescence is one of the emerging science areas that I mentioned that we're really seeing significant potential in. The immediate application that comes to mind when you talk about senescence these days is in the oncology space. But we do think there is opportunity to go beyond just the, uh, the you know, currently predominant uh, implications in, in cancer. Uh, autoimmune diseases uh, come to mind. Maybe even some cardiovascular metabolic complications come to mind. And you know, I think there's several angles that we are interested in pursuing senescence on, but it's predominantly cellular senescence. Aging itself is actually an interesting area. I think it's one of the, coming back to your analogy at the beginning, the raindrops that are really high up in the cloud that's just forming right now. But I think there's increasing amount of, of work coming forward uh, in that space that could open us up. But right now, our senescence effort and our group focus really around cellular senescence with uh, oncology as a main focus and uh, looking to go beyond the oncology space, probably autoimmune disorders is one of the, the expansion spaces that comes first. Excellent. Terrific. I'll actually look up that a little bit more later on. Regarding optimistic signs in the neuroscience space, is there much new approaches that you consider exciting or interesting? Yeah. So as you know, you know, Pfizer continues to invest into the neuroscience space through our uh, partnering vehicles, particular to, you know, VC and, and seed investments, or venture, I should say, and seed investments. Now, I think we have seen a lot of interesting biology surfacing in some of the more classical neuroscience areas, though I'm not sure the readiness for therapeutic approaches has dramatically changed. But some of the areas that I hold a lot of promise uh, include, for example, neuroinflammation. Again, an area where you start to see pathogenic mechanism to become common across several therapeutic areas, not just diseases, but whole therapeutic areas. And I think the inflammatory component is clearly one that we see play a role, not just in autoimmune disorders, but in oncology and cardiovascular metabolic complications and many others. And so neuroinflammation is, is one area that I personally think holds a lot of promise. Uh, still early days on the biology side, 
but uh, something we're looking into and exploring to some degree as well and trying to better understand when and where exactly on the mechanistic side would be the, the great entry path into, into neuroscience activities. So if you have a manufacturing uh, improvement that you could mention, but just tools in general, like uh, viral vectors uh, at one point were a bottleneck. Is there, if you could wave a wand and uh, have one more tool that was at your disposal easily? I think we need uh, many more tools, uh, not just uh, a single tool, but a, a tool chest, so to speak. I think there's still many areas. But <clears throat> so, for example, picking RNA, since we talked about this a little bit earlier, Obviously, we have made very significant investments into the RNA manufacturing space, RNA and, and LMP, so the uh, lipid nanoparticles that are needed for the delivery of the RNA. You mentioned capsids, I think, as well as another example, also from a gene therapy perspective. These are areas where we have made very significant investments already. Obviously, with the COVID-19 vaccines, uh, very large scale, high quality kind of manufacturing capabilities. But there are a number of areas where I think everyone, including us, is looking for further improvements. Uh, one of them is actually targeted delivery. And I think that's not just true for RNA, that's true for you know, small molecule, large molecules, oligo-based therapies. That is that you know, we believe that if you're able to deliver your therapeutic modality to your target organ or your target cell, could bring a lot of additional advantages for patients allowing to access new indications where we currently don't have any effective therapies in, but even for existing therapies, you might be able to provide a safer kind of lower dose type of approach if you could deliver it in a very selective manner to your side of interest. You know, I think there's a lot of activities when it comes to lipid nanoparticles for local delivery. There's a lot of activities in the capsid kind of space, AV space. So any kind of tropism that you can introduce that would really be selective and could be dialed in and out as desired would be a very promising kind of platform that we would be, you know, very interested in, obviously. Just, I mean, just picking one here, like I said, there's many others, but just this one that came to mind. Yeah, and no, capsids were on my mind in the sense that there's a debate about the full or empty capsid and what it does on the biology side. Whether yep. That's helpful. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like you to take the opportunity to have a comment or a, a message yourself and to monopolize the agenda. Is, is there something that you would like to sort of say about the, the way the 2022 is unfolding or just anything exciting? You know, one thing that comes to mind um, is that, you know, we are coming out of the, I would, what I would call the first phase of the pandemic, so to speak, uh, with COVID-19. I think we all have gained a new appreciation about how the world works and also how drug development can work and what benefits it can bring across the board. And I hope that this will help to boost the trust the public is putting into companies like Pfizer. You know, I can not tell you how much people within Pfizer, the scientists within Pfizer and, and others really care about being able to help patients and being able to see how you can make a difference for patients but also do so in a very safe manner. And I think we have not always been able to relay that as efficiently as we hope we could and should. So I hope this certainly has helped and I hope it's just the beginning of a number of additional breakthroughs that will come in a more expedited manner 
maybe not the nine to 10 months we have seen with the COVID-19 vaccine, but also not the usual 10 plus years that we sometimes have needed to bring an idea forward to an, uh, become an effective kind of therapy. So hopefully the general trust in, in drug development, the general trust in Pfizer is remaining, if not further increasing. And you know, we will be able to step up to this by delivering more breakthroughs in the next few years to come, be it through RNA-related therapies, be it through gene therapy, or be it through the more classical small molecules and antibodies. What an excellent point to emphasize at the end, Uwe. Uh, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, which is not always easy because I didn't prepare you for all of the questions. <laughs> so uh, thank you, everybody, uh, but especially you, Uwe. It's very, very generous and very thoughtful. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our editors and experts for sharing their insight. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.